Good morning and welcome to episode 89 of the Cooch Street Podcast. This week we've invited Barry Molesberg to join us to talk about science fiction, the 50s, the history of the world, and hopefully it will be an interesting and controversial conversation. So first, welcome Barry Molesberg. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you at whatever distance. It's long overdue. <laughs> it is indeed. And good evening, Beck Gary. And good evening... Yeah. Jonathan, but it's morning where you are, so I'll say good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. <laughs> this is very confusing. Jonathan is in Perth, Australia, and it's Saturday morning sometime, or possibly next Tuesday there. It is indeed. It's usually next Tuesday here. It's also the middle yeah. of summer. What, the, what time? What time is it? It's nine thirty on Saturday morning. Yeah. Uh, Five thirty, you said. Nine thirty. Nine thirty on Saturday morning. Nine thirty. All right, and it's 8.30 p.m. here. Yes. So you're only 13 hours. That's not so drastic. If only it took just that long to get there rather than closer to about 27 hours if you actually try and physically make the journey, but still. Right, right, right. So, look, I guess just to kick off, one of the things that sort of suggested we'd start talking now was, Gary, you've just announced the Library of America project that you've done. Uh, nine classic novels of the 50s. And I think, Barry, you'll have seen the list of books. So I guess, first of all, I'd sort of throw it to Gary just for a moment. Gary, why those books? Well, uh, I can back up a little bit and say that. <laughs> yeah, let's read them off. Let's, okay. let's get okay. Well, let me, let me tell you. I have the list in front of me. The list are in volume one for 1953, which Charles Brown and I used to argue was the greatest year in the history of science fiction at one point. Frederick Powell and Sam Cornblis, The Space Merchants, a long-forgotten book. Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human. Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow. Richard Matheson's The Shrinking Man. And in Volume 2, Robert Heinlein's Double Star. Alfred Bester's The Star's My Destination. James Blish's A Case of Conscience. Algis Budris's Who. And Fritz Leiber's The Big Time. Basically a bunch of books by washed-up hacks that no one wants to read anymore, Gary. How could you get it so wrong? The big time, I know. I mean, nobody nobody cares about library anymore. Um, I, I'm, I'm completely waiting for that reaction, but I'd rather listen to the reaction from somebody I, I know I respect, um, like Barry. So what's your first take on that list? Well, Barry? It, it, I, it is not a list with which I, I, I can't quarrel with a list, obviously. It's, a very, it's very strong. There, there, you know, we could argue pointlessly for hours. There, there are some books I, I might prefer there, but, but I don't really know what I'd want to take out either. So it's, a, it's as good a list as, as can be, uh, can be gotten. Well, well based if, on, if you're, if you're held in line now. Thank you. But based on your, your reading of the 50s, I, I, I think that, that that's quite I was going to say, based on your reading and recollection of the fifties, I was going to say, based on your reading and recollection of the fifties, Barry, does it feel like a a representative sample for the decade? Yes, yes, representative, uh, representative of the best. There are novels I could rattle, uh, I could rattle off to you, which are more refractory of the decade, mm -hmm. such as the first Hugo, uh, sorry, the second Hugo winner, uh, winner the uh, the Mark Clifton. Mm -hmm. uh, Frank Riley collaboration, uh, which which ran in astounding, and of course I'm blocking on the title, but they'd rather be that, right. That is, they'd rather be right. Also, publisher also is the Forever Machine. That that is a quintessentially fifties novel. Mm -hmm. I don't think any novel published in uh, with the label science fiction was more a creature of its decade than that. Do you think that's what's wrong? Sorry, continue. But it's uh, but it is by no means it may be the most representative, but it's not the best. I, it, it, it's it's not in the it certainly it's not it's not among the nine best. If if you assemble this volume, I think properly to get to get a good representation of the best work being done at the time that you could get. And I don't think you would find many who would argue that uh, that they'd rather be right would stand uh, at the peak. But as a creature of its decade and as a refraction of the time, 
it is it is a remarkably interesting social instrument. Okay. You've, you've written before about Mark Clifton as being, and he certainly by today. I, I as, as Silverberg wrote me 20, Lord, it's 22 years ago already. I wrote the, I did the introduction to that novel for the Eastern Press edition, 1990. Uh-huh. And Silverberg said, you're not only this guy's only fan, you may be his only reader. <laughs> I, have, I have been trying, I have been trying you know, to hold the, uh, that flag. I, uh, I, I have very little company, very little. But I, I have almost single-handed, I think. Man, if, if Clifton has any visibility today, it is through my efforts. And I, I must say that those efforts are absolutely selfless because I've gotten nothing out of this except questions as to, as to how I, I could defend such a rotten writer. That's, <laughs> that, uh, that's about all that, uh, the good I've got on it. But I think he's a very you, interesting thing. Well, yeah, and he was, very as you as, uh, yeah, you mentioned in your uh, sort of, I guess, obituary essay about him, that uh, he was a he was considered a major figure in the magazines and was somebody that people I guess looked up to for a good four or five or six years, um, but none yeah. of that seems to have survived. I guess that raises the issue of the the difference between the best books or the best stories and the most representative because that was something I was sort of thrust in the middle of with this Library of America thing. They wanted a little bit of both, um, but you know, yeah. as any anthology. As, as any editor knows, and Jonathan's been through this, and I'm sure you have as well, Barry, that what goes into the final volume partly is what you can get permission for, partly is based on length. I was going to say, I, I know uh, that, that the degree to which uh, the, this was Budgers's great obsession through his decades of reviewing, that what, what we see, what we read is is more affected by the forces of the market and circumstance than we'll ever know. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that uh, to, uh, there, there is not an immutable body of work there, but, uh, but a, a, a lot of work which was done in response to immediate situations. And, and assembling the Library of America volumes was, was certainly well, one significant issue was what, what permissions you could get. Yeah, and there were some we couldn't, and some we barely got at the last minute. Um, I would think Heinlein would have been a challenge. Um, you know, the real challenge was, was Bester. Really? We, we, was and was that, a question of, uh, was that a question of bargaining, negotiation, or simply finding someone who would release it? It was literally finding, it was the latter. It was finding the right combination of people. Uh, right. Because it's... It's a well-known story that, uh, the way it's usually told, that Alfred Bester left his literary estate to his bartender. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is part of folklore now, yes. It's, 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 well, it turns out that he's the, his good friend that he did leave his estate to, in fact, worked as a bartender, which isn't quite the same thing. Um, but that person died, and then there's this family. At any rate, that came through. Some people simply turned us down. Uh, there were some kinds of books that... Uh, we couldn't. Uh, the obvious choice, I think, we couldn't do because of the length was a canticle for libelists. Um, so they wanted to get as many novels. We they hoped to get ten volumes, ten novels in two volumes. And between uh, representing the decade, representing some of the concerns of the decade, uh, some kind of reflection of the Cold War, representing different kinds of influences, different types of science fiction, uh, you end up choosing. You, you, you could almost come up with nine different criteria for a book like this and choose one novel for each of those criteria. Yes, yes, of course you could. Of course you could. And you could take nine, nine entirely different novels and make as convincing a case for them. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and so and, and you could track the Hugos, uh, uh, the Hugo winners uh, for over, over 50 years and you could prepare an alternate list, which would be just as def- you could prepare several alternate lists, which would be uh, just as defensible or better. So, uh, so Absolutely. yes, I mean, uh, in, ultimately, this uh, there are more factors. 
they, they come into play, then then the the, the readership, or for that matter, the critics will ever understand. But as I said, well, you've got a, a decent representation there. I can't quarrel, I can't quarrel with any. Of it. The only quarrel, if if it's going to be one best novel, I would rather have had the Demolished Man. I think. Mm-hmm. How so? I'm not. I, they're both wonderful novels. Yeah. I think the Demolished Man is. I I think I think that it, it might offer more to uh, to a more general audience. But the, who knows? Who knows? You could, I don't you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me Donald tell you one. Star is incontestably to me Heinlein's best novel. Yeah. You know, Thank I you. I agree with that. Uh, um, and that was that was by way of not putting in Starship Troopers. Of putting what? Well, the the the, the, the original title that I had been uh, that had been suggested to me was Starship Troopers, and I thought that's not. No, 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 certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, Starship Troopers is is the novel which finished Heinlein at uh, at Scribner's and and left a great deal of unpleasantness behind it. To this day, to the, uh, really? the, the novel the novel has uh, as as many enemies as, as friends. More than more than fifty years after its publication, and it's, as I said, it, it finished in its scribbles, and and, let me, let me, and uh, there was a lot of bad feeling associated. And, well, and it, like almost all of his work, it's readable and and even uh, absorbing, but it's not. It it isn't all that good, and it is polemical in unpleasant ways. Mm-hmm. I guess so. let, let, let me ask you both a question. I mean, get Barry or Gary, you've just done a set of books of the fifties, and Gar- uh, Barry, I think it was a reference in an email you sent us separately, but you referred to the you know the fifties as you know the last hot time for science fiction. Why, for a younger reader, I guess today, was the fifties such an important time? Why were the sixties? Fifties. The fifties. <laughs> Were the fifties the fifties? I think that's a case I made in that essay. Mm. That yes. uh, that by by the nineteen fifties, you had the so-called what what Isaac Asimov called the third wave of science fiction writers, uh, who had it was the decade in in which uh, if the forties and, and the forties astounding delivered. The essential conceptual basis uh, and and uh, innovation in in the field. Then then the fifties were the period through which a a new group of writers, or or largely a new group of writers with with excellent background, excellent reading background, and more sophisticated. Stylistic techniques, simply by virtue of having absorbed what was being done earlier, were able to come to grips with the material in a sophisticated fashion. And the quality of uh, the quality of writing in the fifties, the quality of writing of the best work was very high, amazingly high. And and well, when this- you think. If you date the as as I as I always have, if you think of science fiction as a category, as a distinct category, and you put its birth date in this country in 1926 with the with amazing stories, then it is an astonishing thing to think that that work like The Men Who Murdered Muhammad and Fondly Fahrenheit and The End of Summer, just to pick. So the subtitles that that this this was less these were being done less than thirty years from the first issue of Amazing Stories. You talk about a, a breadth of of advance, and it's staggering how far and how fast, how quickly the field developed. Or even between the, the, the as I've always said about Bester. 
If you, you mm-hmm. look at those mid-50s short stories, the stories that he was doing for fantasy and science fiction between 50 and 61, which is where it, I think it all ended for him. But you look mm-hmm. at the, uh, that run of stories over those 11 years, uh, and they, they were 50 years ahead of science, of the field of science fiction then, and they're 50 years ahead of us now. And they're always going to be 50 years ahead of us. Like the Beethoven Last Quartets, for instance. They are mm-hmm. worked so stunningly advanced, so brilliantly, uh, brilliant in their foreshadowing and foresight, that we've still barely developed the lexicon to come to terms with them. And this, now the, the best of stories represent the peak of the field, but you don't have to get to the peak to understand that what was being done in, in that decade was, was stylistically sophisticated and, and conceptually ad- advanced and, and prophetic in, in ways which were astonishing. You're talking about Kornbluth, notably Paul Sheckley, could rattle off the names, Judith Merrill's early work, the work that was almost routinely appearing in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, was at a very high level, stylistically and conceptually. Remarkable. Some of this is re-emerging. And uh... although there has been much great work since the 50s, it is clear to me that that was the decade at which at which the field of science fiction achieved at the very least parity parity with the, with the best work being done in fiction in this country <coughs> wholly comparable the its best examples are wholly comparable to the best examples of, of literary work done anywhere and the um, one other example and that's I think that an astonishing amount of that material, as I've just said about the Bester, looks very good today. Well, and, one of the best and is, is as, as accurate now as it was at the time of publication. I was, I was going to add one of the books I'm reviewing in, in Locus. It's an underestimated decade for many reasons. Um, I, don't think, I don't think the people who were doing it then didn't know how good... Uh, they not only didn't know how good it was, they didn't understand that this was... Pro- in terms of, of the health of science fiction and its prospects, this was as good as it was ever going to be. Mm. It never got any better. In terms of, of, of the career and uh, the problems and the social placement of science fiction writers, it, it never got much better than it did in the 50s. Well, here's an argument which I, I've been making, and I'd like to run by you as well, because I, th- I think I think you're right, and I think one of the things that's beginning to happen, I hope not All only right, these... A little louder, please. You're, you're fading on me. Oh, okay. There's my phone ringing in the background. One of the books I'm yeah. reviewing next month, month after next is a, a, a New York Review Books a collection of Robert Sheckley stories edited by Jonathan Lethem and Alex Abramovich. And... New York Review Books is, uh, you know, ideologically an outgrowth of the New York Review of Books. And the fact that a Robert Sheckley compendium would end up in something like that suggests to me that yeah. some of this, this goldmine of the 50s is being exhumed again today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the staying power of that work is remarkable. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it's, it's persistence. A lot of Shetley is being republished. Phil Dick's novels, of course. Mm. We know we oh, know yeah. what has happened there. But this uh, the the work uh, the work that is being reissued or or rediscovered and there and there's so much to be rediscovered is is of value and relevance today. There's now, another argument in, I... the, in 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 the years to come in the in in the long run. I don't know. I'm not very happy mm. with the position in which science fiction finds itself in 2012. Why so? I've, I, Gary knows this. I discussed this mm. in, in my Locus interview, uh, which, which he more or less conducted in September of 2010, 
I discussed this uh, at great length and with much despair because science fiction as a commercial category uh, I think is in, in very serious trouble. But none of these pronouncements have anything to do with the value of the work which lies behind us, which is, which is of, a, of a very high value indeed. What do you think of the value barrier of the work being done today by comparison? I mean, we, we are 50, 60 years, I mean, we're, we're nearly 60 years since the space merchants appeared, kind of thing. So I, I know, I know we are, we are indeed, it is, it is scary to think that the space merchants appeared 60 years ago this June. Mm. It began mm-hmm. to run in the June 52 galaxy. It was completed more than 60 years ago. And, and yet, to me, uh, that novel, which I remember reading in Galaxy Science Fiction as it came out in sections, is very close to me and, and speaks to me now as it did then. But, uh, but w- what do I think, again, as, as Gary knows, this is, a, this is a point I have made. I made it in, this, in the Locus interview in 2010. I made it much mm-hmm. earlier. I had, a, I had an interview which Charlie Brown conducted uh, nine years earlier, ten, uh, uh, ten days before uh, 9-11. Uh, at the Philadelphia World Convention in 2001, Charlie Brown conducted my first interview, and I spoke despairingly and at length of, the, of what I thought was the coming death of science fiction, that the, that the genre was simply losing its audience, and its commercial viability that had been eaten alive by fantasy, that was one problem. It was becoming a minor subdivision of fantasy, largely kept alive by self-sacrificing editors who, who out of love of science fiction, attempted to keep it alive, knowing that it, that it was not the proper commercial decision. That, that, that nostalgia was keeping it alive, and I had, and, and in, secondly, I had pointed out that, that the newer generation of science fiction writers, people like Strauss and Macaulay and Stephen Baxter, uh, just to pick three culprits among many, were writing essentially beyond the, the audience for science fiction. That it would, that it would be impossible for anyone not already deeply immersed in science fiction and its history to comprehend a Strauss novel, mm-hmm. to follow it, to know what was going on. It's just very difficult. Whereas I contrasted this to these great 50 novels, which whatever their limitations or whatever their sophistication, were accessible to the 13-year-old kid I was when I bought the January, the February 52 Galaxy from the stands. And, and read The Demolished Man, and read The mm-hmm. Year of the Jackpot, and read Damon Knight, Catch That Martian, and read Cornboat, and so on. And I had no difficulty understanding this work. It spoke to me, and I did not have to carry a, a intense reading background and a knowledge of the conventions of the genre to relate to these stories. I do not think that this is the case with the writers I have mentioned. And some others. Mm. I don't. I I'm don't think that a thirteen-year-old can pick up Strauss and have any sense of what's going on. So, do you think? Now, very ch- properly, what, what was said to me, and it might have been mm-hmm. Gary who said this, or perhaps mm-hmm. it, I said this on a panel at ReaderCon that that weekend, and someone said from the audience that the thirteen-year-old. I was in 1952 isn't the 13-year-old of today. Mm. And that today's 13-year-olds are are all computer nerds and know this stuff and are vastly more sophisticated than I was. That's a fair point. This may be true. I don't agree with this, but in fairness, (laughs) I, I, I will say that it deserves consideration. Let me ask I've heard the same. Oh, you got to go ahead, uh, Oh, I was going to say uh, this is something I think we may have mentioned before in the podcast, but I've heard this argument made about science fiction in parallel with oh, uh, jazz aficionados or or people who are interested in, in doing the best I can here. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Uh, I've heard the same point made about uh, people who are jazz aficionados or people who are uh, fans of contemporary classical music, that the, the field becomes so hermetic and self-referential that unless you have a grounding in it, you can't understand the new works or don't understand what's new about them. Yeah. It's, it's tough to make a comparison to contemporary classical music because contemporary classical music has an even smaller audience, I think, than <laughs> contemporary science fiction. And also, I, uh, contemporary classical music is almost like the readership of, of literary quarterlies. It's, com it's composed of musicians. It's composed yeah. of people practicing it. I, I don't know how much of an audience, beyond its practitioners and composers, there is the, for contemporary classical music. There are exceptions. I understand that, and I and I know them too. But but classical music, and the important difference here is that classical music was never. I, I say, except maybe for a short period. If you want to, if you want to talk about uh, Mozart in in Vienna, mm -hmm. or or Verdi in Italy, I think. But uh, when, when briefly it it was assimilated by a wide audience but but for the most part classical music from from Bach straight on through to Charles Ives and uh, and Gorecki was never for a mass audience it was never intended to right. be mm. I don't think serious so-called serious composers ever deluded themselves with thinking that with the, the hope or thought that they were writing for the mass audience I I repeat I am accepting the Italian opera during its great period. There have been period there have been little period isolated periods here and there where it has it reached a, a huge audience. But overall it is not a mass market medium and critically to me, science fiction was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Oh really? Okay, if that's you want I to find to one common denominator among these science fiction writers we are of whom we are speaking, all of these people Judith Merrill and Fred Pohl and Aldous Budgers and Cyril Cornbluth and Alfred Bester, they wanted to reach a wide audience. They were, in, they were in the business of spreading the word. They were missionaries. They wanted as large an audience as they could, uh, could find, and they were trying with their work to reach it. <laughs> what they were not in any sense, psychically or in practice, or what we have come to call Mandarin. Mm -hmm. So when did Saunders like like Charles Ives or Schoenberg knew that they were writing for a very small audience and wanted to be writing for a small audience simply because what what they did, by definition, to them was was too fine and sophisticated to be meant to appeal. And, and uh, to a wide audience. But Bester and Kornbluth and Paul and Algis Budgers wanted to reach as many as they could. So did I. So, it's so did I. It was a, in a, a, my own work, I may have been laughably self-deluded as, as I look over, as I look past the decades, but I wanted my work to be read by a huge audience. I never felt that I that I was writing for I I was de facto writing for a small audience, but that I was that isn't what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write science fiction because through science fiction I felt I could reach a much larger audience than I could through the writing of literary fiction, which was, as everyone knows, my field of first intention. Yeah. And it was only after I came to certain conclusions about literary fiction and about my own work and my role in it that I saw that I began to see science fiction as a much better alternative, even a kind of solution. But a lot of your fiction was very critical of the assumptions of of 1950s science fiction, and and, and it, but you know in in some ways it uh, I don't know ideologically or emotionally it felt more like new wave fiction than it did like uh, the celebratory fictions of the 50s. Uh, and some of your work was, well, in fact, openly I, critical. I, I, was I was writing satire, of course, but I also, I, I, I started, I, I started, there's no question, 
that like some other uh, some other like dish like some contemporaries i started by by working against or mocking or satirizing some of what we now call the tropes of uh, right. of this uh, 50s science fiction but everybody's got to start somewhere right <laughs> and i i was i it was it was part of a learning experience i was not out uh, I, I was not out to destroy the field. Wasn't there a big outcry when uh, was Beyond Apollo got the Campbell Award, didn't it? Yes, I know. I know that. And, that. <laughs> and some, I know. But some people said about that at the time. Well, what can I say about Beyond Apollo? I, I was trying in Beyond Apollo to make what I thought were certain important suggestions about the misassumptions of the space program. I um. found myself dragged, dragged in, into a controversy, which I, I didn't feel I invited, and, and of course, uh, it was, it was, it, I, I didn't write the novel to get in there because I wanted to get into the kind of trouble I did. <laughs> Hardly. And, and I, I wanted, I wanted to take a long, not so long, it's only 45,000 words, but I wanted to take a look at the space program and question its assumptions, mm. which I thought were very dangerous assumptions, which would lead to its collapse. I was absolutely right. <laughs> you didn't have to be right, yeah. Good at I was right, and, 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 and when, I, when I look back 40 years, I was one of the few science fiction writers at the time who had clarity on this, and saw that the space that NASA, by by, by becoming the uh, affiliated by 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 being allowing itself to be pimped out by the administration by the government to be uh, by allowing itself to become a distraction from the Vietnam War by by putting itself in this position by becoming part of the Pentagon that NASA was dooming itself. It was clear to me that the, that the space pro the objectives of the space program for the government were uh, were not the objectives which uh, which science fiction fans wanted it to be, and it mm. was clear to me that uh, that once it had served its purpose, which was to distract from uh, from uh, the the Vietnam War and 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 the disaster of uh, of, of foreign policy at that time that once it served that purpose, it was going to die, which expensively it did. Mm. I did not, and I remember saying this, I say, I, a friend of mine teaches political science, uh, and, and I talked to one of his classes a couple of years ago uh, on exactly this question. He, I, 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 he asked me to address the question of, uh, of, of the political uses of science fiction. And, uh -huh. and what role science fiction could play in political prophecy or dialogue. And I said I didn't consider myself inordinately brilliant. It just, it so happens that Ballard in England and, and I in, in the USA were the only science fiction writers, I do believe, who in the late 60s, early 70s, were taking a look at NASA and the space program. And, and reaching certain conclusions and making predictions. And it wasn't mm. because I, I, I can't talk for Ballard, who's a, who's a great writer, far beyond my, uh, my means. I, I wouldn't have the temerity, but I can only talk about myself. I didn't think I was that brilliant. I didn't think there was anything brilliant in what I was seeing or doing. Anybody with, with, with common intelligence who read the newspapers and saw what was going on would reach these conclusions. I didn't think that what I was writing was so controversial. Mm -hmm. I was amazed when I, when I became targeted. To me, it was a matter of simple clarity and judgment. Of course, NASA was headed toward disaster. Of course, after, after Apollo 13, uh, which, which capped it in disaster, it had nowhere to go. Where were we going to go? Were we going to run more flights to the moon? Maybe blow up a few people. All in one. There was there was no there was nowhere to go. Technology had didn't have the means to send us anywhere else. And if we got there, what were we gonna do? Right. There was no future in it. 
it clearly was going to collapse. And then what? I, I, I did not think that I, would, I was writing anything particularly brilliant. Mm. I was, I was <laughs> making some very obvious statements. Vonnegut was saying this. He wasn't writing it. Vonnegut never wrote a novel about the space program. But Vonnegut, uh-huh. he, he, he had an, I remember he was on television a week before the moon landing. On uh, July 13th, 1969, he was being interviewed. What, what's going to happen on the moon? What's going to be the outcome of this mission? And Vonnegut said, we're going to turn the moon and into another piece of junk. That's all it's going to be. It's going to, it's going to be television commercials and littered, uh, littered left behind on the moon and, and uh, television comics. <coughs> And junk, and maybe some junk floating around in orbit. We will succeed in doing on the moon what we've already done <laughs> on Earth. We'll convert uh-huh. it all to junk. And I, I, that struck me as perfectly reasonable, not controversial, sane, straightforward. And, and I, essentially, I was, uh, my fiction was making the same point. What, what was Vonnegut so brilliant a... about it, except that nobody else was saying it? Or at least did, nobody did else was getting published by uh, saying it. Uh, I, I was curious, so coming out of someone, that... Maybe someone, 40 years later, maybe someone could explain to me, patiently and quietly, why Ballard and I were the only science fiction writers really, who really foreshadowed and understood the disaster to, to, to come. Why? True. There were brilliant science fiction writers all over the place. Plenty of markets. Were they... Big audience, lots of, lots of angry students demonstrating against the war and certainly hating the government and prepared to question anything the government maintained. So why, why was it Ballard and me? Do you know? Well, were they too in love with the dream of science fiction itself? I mean, uh, were they, was it wish fulfillment, I guess? You know, sort of, we see the dream, you know, the dream of science fiction through its life is, is going out into space, out to the stars and everything else. If you start disbelieving in NASA, maybe you disbelieve in the basic path forward. Was, was that what distracted them? You know, we don't want to look at how it can end up in disaster, abandoned and everything else. It's going to happen because we really, really want it to, and this is the, the one chance we have. Is that maybe yeah. what distracted them? The, the dream of it? I, I suppose so. I suppose so. I mean, it was the same emotions in regarding the the, the NASA that uh, that were brought to the television uh, set for Star Trek, mm. and that yeah. later on to the movie theaters for Star Wars. I suppose. Uh, the, People may not have necessarily believed it. We wanted it to happen, and of of course, if uh, this, it would be good for science fiction and good for fandom and 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 all of this. But as I said, it's a matter of simple clarity. You could you could want. So did I. I want. I wanted nothing more than this. I, I somehow, the fact that I was predicting NASA's collapse and the collapse and and the collapse of the space program. Uh, got, got me labeled as the guy, as the, as the Cassandra who wanted this, mm. who took, who took joy in this, who took a kind of mocking, superior, smirking glee in this collapse. I never did. Mm. Quite the reverse. I think I can go to, back to, and, and, to see what was going to happen and, 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 Write about it was was not by any means to endorse it or 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 do it to to take pleasure in it. In a way, Fred Pohl Fred Pohl says one of science fiction's predictive qualities, as in as in 1984, the best example is that the prediction makes the event less likely to happen. Mm. That in a sense, Orwell's novel prevented the 1984 the novel envisioned from happening, just as the space merchants might 
you could argue the space merchants might have made advertising somewhat less abusive than it might have otherwise been. And it was in that spirit that I uh, that I was writing the, uh, these novels and stories. I, 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 Barry, I do want to suggest a title that actually does predate both you and Ballard, uh, and it's Frederick Brown's The Lights in the Sky Are Stars, which, as far as I can tell, is the first science fiction novel, if not the only one uh, at that period, to imagine a space program having simply been abandoned and shut down for various economic and social reasons. You were going to tell me a science fiction work that did, that did other than mine, that did make this point. And then I, I was lost you. I was going to suggest Frederick Brown's The Lights in the Sky are Stars. Right, absolutely. I agree with you. I, uh, there it is, and, it, and it's almost 20 years early. I believe that was 53. Close mm-hmm. enough. It's, it's, it's almost 20 years before Beyond Apollo. I agree with you. And what, no one had imagined it, it, the space program. Yeah. Except in the case of, of that novel, the, the space program in totality is a lie. They made it up. It never happened. Oh, yeah, exactly right. Which, which really, interestingly enough, echoes all the stories about the faked moon landing. Um, right. The, 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 right. There's, there's a new documentary film about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, in which one of the theories is that The Shining is Kubrick's confession for having faked the moon landing for NASA back in 1969. Yeah. I've read that. I've read that. And there was a novel like that. I, there was a movie, I think, I forget the title, Ron Goulart did a novelization of it, which, which said the moon landing was a studio job. Right. And, yeah. and I, I, I'm, I'm not that much of a conspiratorial conspiracy theory, a theorist. I think it was real. <laughs> but Brown, the Brown's novel, yes, 20 years before mine, suggests that, it, that it was, the whole thing was a fake. Right. It would have been better if it had been a fake. <laughs> because if it, if it had been proven a fake, then there would still be belief that a real NASA and a real landing would have substantive social impact. Which, of course, it didn't. Well, do you think that contemporary science fiction writers are engaging with those public policy issues in the way that you and Ballard no. were trying to do? No, I don't. I don't, but let's be fair here. It is it is very characteristic of the old to deplore the young, and it's not the way it used to be in my time, Sonny. These new <laughs> kids don't know what it's about. I I, I could fall into that. I I do not think that uh, that that writers in their thirties, forties, fifties are engaging the issues the way that that my generation tried. I don't. I as as gifted as they are, mm. uh, and I think Strauss and Macaulay are are in, uh, inordinately gifted. I don't see where where this stuff really tangles with the real world. Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I understand. I was going to ask a sort of a a half related question, I guess, which is you know to sort of shine a, a, a temporary light of optimism in a sense that, that current science fiction. What do you think they're doing right? You know, the modern you know science fiction writers today. And who is doing it right? Is it just Macaulay and Strauss, or is it broader than that? If you are a good science fiction writer, a good contemporary science fiction writer to me, and I don't read, I don't keep up, and this again, this is a characteristic of the, of the agent. You read what, what you used to read, and you try to keep up with your contemporaries, but, but everybody, almost every writer falls off. At a certain point, a good modern SF writer to me is Nancy Cress. Mm-hmm. She may be the best. She is working within the traditional modes with, with, with a great deal of brilliance and insight. She is doing it well. I don't know if she is, uh, is the most innovative of writers, but she is frighteningly accomplished and, and, and as good an example of a science fiction writer as we have today. That, that, as to doing it right in the in the sense of uh, I have read very very little work within the last few years which has truly impressed me, but that can be as much a chronological 
personal statement as a, as a literary person. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I I, I I I wouldn't trust that. It's uh, it's unfortunate, but but uh, writer writers get get out of touch and essentially are as readers and writers are locked to their to their formative years and 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 early early years. Very very few can can uh, can stay or Quran over a long period sure. of time. And 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 keep on. There are a few. There are a few. Uh, I don't think you're William Williamson almost 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 to the end, for instance. But uh, but most most writers, and I said this ever so long ago, for most writers, it's a ten year business. Your best work, uh, the run of your best work, is in the, is in your first decade. Yeah. And after that, you are you are recapitulating it. Or, or, or parodying it, or trying to escape it. Okay. Well, I was going to say, there are many some writers who, who maintain a high level of, uh, of quality over a long period of time. There are some. Paul, Paul has done very well. But I think another thing with writers, sometimes, sometimes writers do Paul's choose to move on. Work is, Paul's best work is uh, The Years of the City. He wrote at 65. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. The, was the mid-70s, wasn't it? The, the Years of the City was published, I believe, in 86, 85 or 86. Yeah. And that, 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 that really was like his last great work, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. It is. It's great. He, he said to me, I, I, I remember, I, I praised it to him, and he said, I, that is one, of, uh, is one of the two works of, uh, of which I am most proud. The, uh, the other is Man Plus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question that a modern reader might ask to, to sort of briefly circle us around to where we started with the list of books that, that Gary put into his American um, science fiction series for Library of America. And that is, to me, when I listen to people around me talking on the Internet and everywhere else, the most common issue you know, discussed is the, you know, is the role of women in science fiction, all this kind of thing. Where are the women in this list? There's nine writers. There's one woman with a long tomorrow. Does that represent what Fifty Science Fiction was like? Uh, is there more or less? Yeah, more or less. Uh, there, there were some crack female science fiction writers, but uh, but very very few who made uh, a strong impression. Merrill, of course, Merrill was an enormous figure for about three years there. From fifty mm-hmm. or say from fifty one to fifty five, Judith Merrill was really hot stuff, and then it all it all crumpled on her quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine McLean was important. There were there were some good women writers of the second rank, yeah. but uh, but major, brilliant, important, influential female writers and uh, got to look toward the mid to late sixties. Le Guin McCaffrey. Mm-hmm. The Gwyn, certainly. Yeah, and, and I guess that's got to be a, a. I mean, I'm not that familiar, but uh, that that's a social, you know, a reflection of the social situation in, in the United States through the 50s, 60s, and onwards. That the interest, the focus on science fiction, the demographic of people involved in it changed, and that's why you're, you know, we see more people. We see the Le Guins, the Russes the Wilhelms and so on um, appearing. Yes. Yeah. But uh, much earlier, of course, is that C.L. Moore was as good as it gets. And she was there at the top of the field in the 40s. Yeah. And I don't know. C.L. Moore really was as good as a science fiction writer could be in in the mid to late 40s. She was terrific. Oh, can I ask you? The nature of the time she was submerged by her husband, maybe. Uh, There was a a certain tendency, uh, if they were wrote in collaboration, then Henry had to be the real one. But I I think of them as inextricably bound. Mm. And and she was superb. Barry, I want to ask you a question of which I've heard, and I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but you wrote your early stories, uh, some early stories, very good stories, under the name K.M. O'Donnell. And I think yeah. it was Charles who told that, that was Kuttner and Moore, plus their yes. favorite yes. them. 
Yes, exactly. So that student exactly. is a tribute to Captain Moore. Oh, well, un- unquestionably. Uh, we, at the time I started to write science fiction seriously, we got a Cocker Spaniel, <laughs> who I named Paget. That, uh, that uh, crazy Cocker Spaniel was named Paget. <laughs> so I, I knew, I, I knew, I, uh, I, I, I think that what, what they were doing in, in astounding, in a run uh, in astounding from 43 to, to 49 was astonishing. It's as yeah. good a body of work as produced by any science fiction writer uh, in a comparable period of time. Yeah. You once listed Second Season as Uneven. one of the great... There, you, you there, there are a bunch of stinkers in there, too, but 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 I, uh, I, I remember saying to a friend uh, when, the, when the, the Greenberg Asimov Best SF of the Year... 1949 came out, mm. and I said, uh, "Private Eye in January 49, astounding. Prisoner in the Skull, February 49, astounding." You know, I said, "I'd settle for that." <laughs> if uh-huh. uh, you could, if if that was me, if that was me, and that was all I had ever done, you could put. I I wouldn't mind that on my gravestone. <laughs> That's not bad. Just that. I, I have to I have to ask one more question, Barry, because this is. Something that's come up every time we've talked. Do you remember the contents of every issue of every magazine? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. And, you, you and if I uh, was ever stupid enough to make that representation, somebody from the audience nope. would get up and would call all right, Smarty. I'm holding the February '58 World's Event. Give me one title. Yeah, I'd be stepping into it. I I I know a lot. I know a lot, but one. One, uh, as science fiction itself teaches us, uh, if you if you know if you know the right things, you can extrapolate intelligently. Mm, that's true. And I have I have a pretty good grasp of uh, of of the history of what was going on at any given time. But no, of course, I don't remember every issue. Well, well, Although, as Silverberg said, I can re- I can remember covers from my youth. Yeah, like like batting averages and RBI and home run records, and and the and the Brooklyn Dodgers infield in 1952. I can describe the covers of the November 47, December 47. Astounding! This is this this is the kind of nonsense which Sam Moskowitz would 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 call scholarship. <laughs> it's not it's not scholarship. It's uh, no. I- but it's impressive. What? It's an impressive feat of memory. At, well, at, at best, it's a it's a quirk of uh, of uh, recall. Let me ask you this then, uh, just for for the fun of it. Um, since we've been talking about the fifties, what would be your pick for the greatest decade for modern science fiction? Starting, if, you know, if we take where where you touched on earlier that amazing stories in nineteen twenty six is the beginning of modern science fiction. What's the greatest decade? Yes. Is is it the fifties? Is it? Yes, I think I, I said that. Yes, yeah. I think it's the fifties. I th- I, th- I think so. And, and if you want to play around, you if it be, uh, does it have to be a decade or can it be any ten years? Any ten years. Any ten years. Any ten years. Uh, maybe I drive from forty-six to fifty-six. Okay. Which would let me get vintage season in there and and private eye and the late great Cutners and. The, and maybe I, but but I, but if you have to pick a decade, yeah, I would say the fifties. You're, you're not a The fifties are the are the key decade in the history of modern science fiction. The, the decade you can't take that out. Well, but you see, I I'm, I was going to say you can't take it out, and the field would would be recognizable, of course, would be recognizable, and I you can't take out the forties either. Mm. And in terms of building. Of, of accretion, cultural accretion, the 40s may be more important. But the 50s were But better. in terms of... Stylism yeah, let me, let me say something. But that's, you know, that, that's a, a full rounding. I started, I started an hour ago saying that. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what well, I'd say. Here's an argument which I've been making. I, I made this argument about uh, the Library of America thing. I think they, if I'm not mistaken, originally approached me about talking about science fiction novels of the 40s because they had done... Two volumes of, of noir novels of of, of classic yes, American Yes, I know. Noir. I'm aware. I I I think I have them. Yes. Yeah, 
and and my argument was the science fiction novels of the 40s uh, aren't that impressive. Uh, and when you get into the 50s, no, it, it was what it was mean? not. It was not. Although there were classic, ser- astounding serials which became books, so many of them. Exactly I think my I point. would argue that the greatest work of the 40s are, uh, are sub-novel length. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I can't think of a. I can't think well, of a it, 40s novel which is in any way comparable to the to the best 50s uh, 40s short stories. Yeah. Well, and here's my argument. My argument uh, in in saying I don't want to do the 40s, I'll do the 50s, was that in effect the science fiction novel written and conceived as a novel for a market of novels was invented in the right. 1950s. Right. I mean, prior to 1950, you you could sell a serial, but you did not have a market for a novel. Right. Right. That is correct. That is and correct. Therefore, it was a magazine medium, and the, the the classic 40s novels, I think almost without exception, were written for magazine serial, serialization. Yeah, exactly. And they were structured that way. So you had a big peak after 30,000 or 20,000 words and another peak at 40, and you, mm-hmm. you contrived it for the breaks, and you always wanted to, to end an installment on a level of suspense and so on. They were essentially malformed by definition. Right. Malformed as, a, as unified novels. Yeah. But then uh, the, the counter-argument is that the, the Space Merchants was written as a serial. So was the demolition. That's answer. true. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but on the so other hand, the more than human... My destination. Yeah. But part of what I'm thinking there is somebody in- like Lee... Lee Brackett had a terrific career as a short fiction writer, as enormously successful, yes, and, and apart from... But, but And she sat down to write a novel with a serious novel market in mind, and she came up with A Long Tomorrow, which is unlike anything she'd written prior to that. Right. That's right, yeah. I, I agree. So, it, uh, is, uh, it, it, I mean, it is serious, innovative, not- and... and and it was written as a novel, yes. Right. Yes. Because uh, suddenly you had editors, you had Walter Bradbury at Doubleday, you had a, pel- a, a number yeah. of publishers Just that were willing to take Just as Canticles as good as it is, was written as a serial. I think it was, right. an, as a novel, it's an afterthought. He scraped mm-hmm. some brilliant related novellas together and expanded them. But it was, ne- it was not conceived as a novel, and the joints show. Do you think the that's why Rune is a novella? Yeah. Do you think Rune, that's why Rune is a novella, which which was again it was expanded? Right. Do you think that's why Case struggled? of Conscience was? Yeah. Case of Conscience was a novella, and then and then Blish was essentially uh, was argued into well you've gone this far, you might as well get a novel out of this. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in in those cases, the magazine. The magazine conception predominated. You still yeah. writers framed their work in terms of magazine. Yeah. That changed in the sixties. Yeah. Right. Okay. They knew what they wanted was a four-part serial and astounding, which and that- was clearly shaped as a four-part serial, yeah. meant to be. Mm-hmm. And then but my understanding, yeah, example yeah. of Sturgeon and Human, is that Betty Valentine, I think she told me this anyway, went back and said, "Write the rest of this novel." Basically, he had a novella, but nothing else. That's and, exactly and he, right. He wrote Baby is Three, mm-hmm. and he sold it to Gold, and whoever it was, whether it was Gold or Pole or, or somebody, <laughs> said, "Let's see, you, you write a prologue and an epilogue." Yeah. Uh huh. And make it a novel, which is what he did. Yeah, the version Sturgeon I heard was not was a novelist. Right, Sturgeon exactly. Sturgeon yes. just was not a novelist, and and I swiped the phrase from Fred Pohl uh, long ago that, and he was writing of Cornbluth, who shared Pohl said the curious inability of a whole generation of brilliant short story writers in science fiction who could not write novels to the level of their short stories. Mm-hmm. And that was true of all of them. 
That changed in the 60s. There's there's not a one. I cannot think of a great science fiction writer before the 60s whose novels were anywhere on on the level of the short stories. And that goes for Heinlein, goes for Van Vogt, it goes for a whole bunch of them. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Given us a lot to think. Tragedy was a surgeon could not write novels. He could fake them. Yeah. He he Uh learned how to fake them, but he was not a novelist. Surgeon, surgeon would surgeon's limit really to hold the structure together was about twenty thousand, thirty thousand words. Maybe as three as thirty thousand. That's about the furthest he could go. When you care, when you love is about 25. Yeah. And that, that's pretty much similar to um, Walter Miller as well, isn't it? I mean... Uh, yes, I just said that about... Yeah, well, 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 but, I mean, Canticle for Leibowitz is a series of novelettes cobbled, sure. cobbled together. But, but this is why he, pr- presumably he struggled so much with the sequel for so long that he never completed. Because he was, just wasn't the next yeah, that's, novelist. Yeah, that's is part, part of it. There yeah. were other problems. Sure. Miller was a mess, as we know. His mm. life was a mess. His mm. ending was a mess. There were reasons why Miller went silent after Canticle, uh, which which were only partly due to artistic difficulties. Yeah. But certainly, yeah. he uh, his optimum length was uh, again was about twenty thirty thousand. Sure. You couldn't. The Dark Stellar, which is absolutely great, is twenty five thousand words. Yeah. And I look at the, I, when I read Dark Stellar long ago, as a, I looked at it as a writer, I was about 30 when I read it for the first time. And it, it was clear to me that it, there would be no problem expanding this to a novel. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I don't see any difficulty, but he didn't. Yeah. He mm-hmm. could have, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been difficult. It just wasn't how he saw things as a writer himself. But he did not, he just didn't see things. Yeah, that way. yeah, just fair. Dumb Waiter and Blood Bank and, and Conditionally Human, his great novellas, could have been expanded without too much difficulty. They weren't. Yeah. This is a At one note. time, I felt, I said long ago that, that Miller's refusal to expand the Darth Stellar to novel length or to sequelize it showed extraordinary integrity. But I've come to feel that it shows extraordinary insufficiency. Ah. It was not so much a conscious, it was not a pur- purposeful, mm. but a, a, con- a confession, as it were, of inability. Yeah. The Marching We're Morons getting... could have been a terrific novel, couldn't it? But yes. Tom Luther, I don't think he even thought of it yeah. that way. Yep. You're right. Little Black Bag would not have been a, a, too much of a problem. To be a novel, you could have you could have spliced marching morons, and and little black bag, which essentially partake of the same background. Yeah, yeah they are. And gotten a decent novel. He didn't do it. What he did was a, was a series of novels, like not this August of the Syndic, which which are so far below his best short stories uh-huh. that they're bewildering. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're almost out of time, yes. and one of the things that comes yeah. to my mind... Yeah, we're just about an hour, it, which, which I, I had warned was about the limit of my articulacy. <laughs> so any, any, anything final, any, uh, any question, any point? It's just every time I talk to you, I think that, okay, uh, Engines of the Night and now Breakfast in the Ruins isn't enough to hear from you about science fiction. I mean, you know so much. About the well, day-to-day survival mechanisms. Are we gonna are, you, are we gonna see more books about science fiction from you? Uh, probably not. Probably no, not. I, I I I really I'm I'm satisfied with Breakfast in the Ruins. I I think I've said everything I uh, I want to say. I could say okay. it again. I could with I, I, the dialogues with Mike Resnick, the twenty <laughs> columns I did for Bain's Universe. I. And uh, introductions I've done here and there, I'm I'm certainly capable of, uh, of of going on. But I I I really I'm I'm at peace. I think I've said everything I have to say about mo- my period in science fiction. Bring me back in 200 years, <laughs> like uh, like like one of like one of my reconstruct, like like my Freud in the remaking of Sigmund Freud. Bring me back. 
<laughs> and, 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 and let me loose, and I'll probably have plenty to say. But I have addressed my time, I think, as thoughtfully and, and, as, with, and, and with as much articulacy as I, as, uh, as I can. I, I don't really think I've left much unsaid. I had Breakfast in the Ruins. The, the most recent essays in Breakfast in the Ruins are, are 10 to 12 years old. I can't say no. that I've, I've had anything in the, in the last decade which I felt urgently needed to be said. Yeah. The Bain columns were all right, but they, there's nothing new there. Yeah. Hmm. The dialogues are certainly all right in terms of, of, of practical considerations and reaching a new audience, but they, nothing new. Yeah. Well then, on that note, we would direct our readers to Breakfast in the Ruins, which of course is still in print from, from Bain, and so, you know, the copy that yes. I'm sitting on my desk right here. As far as I know. And I'd like to thank you very sincerely for joining us, Barry. It's been a very great pleasure, pleasure to have you. Thank it's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Right, thank you. And thank you. Bye.